This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon. I'm Claire Brindis, and I'm the director of the Philip R. Lee Institute for Health Policy Studies. And on behalf of the John Eisenberg Legacy Leadership Committee, Planning Committee, I'm really delighted to welcome you to a very special lecture this afternoon. And to really welcome the guest of honor, uh, Dave Mechanic. And all of you know that this is our 10th lecture. So this is a really wonderful legacy that David is becoming part of. Uh, we're also delighted that Dee Dee Eisenberg is here with her sister Pat and her son Mike and fiance Kaylee. We're really, really pleased that you're part of this and continue the tradition of channeling your dad and your husband's spirit with us. This lectureship was created out of a desire to honor John's memory and his vision of bringing really health policy and the best of health policy research to bear on clinical care and on the way that we not only deliver effective and high quality services, but also impacting the outcomes for so many individuals who are touched by the healthcare system, and also to improve just the quality of the way that we shape policy. Several Bay Area institutions are making this lectureship a reality. And the co-organizers from these institutions are Arnie Milstein from Stanford, Steve Shortell from UC Berkeley, Hal Luft from UCSF, but also the Palo Alto Medical Foundation Research Institute, and myself from UCSF. We are very, very pleased and really thankful and grateful that the lectureship has uh, been launched and is being sustained because of the generosity of the California Healthcare Foundation. And as many of you know, Mark Smith, who was the initial CEO, uh, recently stepped down for the next chapters of his life. And now we're very pleased to honor and welcome Sandra Hernandez, who is now taking the foundation to the next uh, high levels of that fabulous group. And Sandra, as many of you know, is not only a graduate of our own institution, but is someone who's very devoted to health policy. Um, she was the a medical director for the San Francisco County and City and County of San Francisco, but also for many, many years a tremendous leader at the San Francisco Foundation. So we're very pleased to honor Sandra, and we'd like to welcome her to the podium to say a few words on behalf of the foundation. Thank you, Claire. Uh, thank you for that nice introduction, and welcome, everybody. Um, it uh, really is an honor for me both to step into the role as the uh, CEO of the California Healthcare Foundation, and I can tell you that when I was at the San Francisco Foundation, I would see this lecture series come up and lament often that I could not be here, and so it's a very special treat to be here today. I actually met John um, uh, because those of us who did health policy work almost all met John at some point. Uh, 
uh, in time uh, when he was uh, advising the Clinton administration, and so I remember him fondly. And so, Didi, uh, you and your family welcome, and we're delighted to continue his memory. And those of us who are continuing the work in health policy, as well as those that are aspiring to do so, I think this lecture series is a wonderful way to keep his spirit and his vision alive. So nice to meet you, and welcome to you and your family. Uh, and, uh, you know, let me uh, hand it over to Hal, who's going to talk a little bit more about John. Uh, but before I do that, let me just say that uh, to you, David, uh, that the area of behavioral health and mental health is an area that I've had a deep interest in, both personally and professionally, for a very long time. I've read just about everything that you have published, and so it's a distinct honor as well for the California Health Care Foundation and all of the sponsors today to have you with us. So thank you very much. And Hal, I'll give it over to you. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. Uh, I first came across John's writings uh, when I saw his work looking at economic incentives and physicians. I said, wow, a physician who got it right. He had an MBA, so of course uh, th that was not surprising. But where I really worked with John was when I was on the council of the uh, Agency for Healthcare Research and Policy. John rescued the agency. Um, he changed its focus. He made it relevant to real people by organizing a, a, a focus on quality, uh, changing the way people saw it as not just supporting research, but measuring quality, things that people cared about, things that policymakers couldn't ignore, and refocusing the energy of both the organization and the field. So John had both the research skills, but also the political savvy of knowing how to do it in the real world. He was a great mentor. I've heard from many people how wonderful he was as a mentor. And I remember very vividly uh, a talk that he gave in 1997 at the annual research meeting of what was then the Association for Health Services Research, uh, now Academy Health. Um, and actually it was at a session that Institute for Health Policy Studies sponsored on work-life balance in doing research. And with this audience of largely young women uh, researchers. Um, John was talking about work-life balance, and he actually had a reputation for sending emails at 3 in the morning and things of that sort. And ironically, this meeting was on Father's Day. And he was quite wistful about the scheduling. And it was clear that he wasn't happy about that balance and wished they were different. And then when he died a very untimely death in uh, 2002, afterwards, um, I remember going to the National Health Policy Conference sponsored in, in Washington. And with a group of pretty hard-edged policy wonks, there were a lot of people who did not have dry eyes when people were talking about John. So it's my pleasure to uh, hand the baton to uh, Steve Shortell, who will then introduce our speaker. Thank you, Hal. It's really a uh, special privilege and, and honor for me to 
be able to introduce the uh, Eisenberg 2014 10th anniversary uh, legacy lecture because David Mechanic uh, is not only a friend and colleague, uh, he's been a mentor of mine over the years, uh, usually from afar and, and maybe indirectly, but uh, clearly a, a mentor as well. So this is really a, a wonderful occasion uh, for, for me also. I'm going to tell you a little bit about uh, David's background. Uh, some of you know this and some of you uh, maybe don't, so I'll fill in some of the uh, some of the gaps here. He's currently and still is the Rene Dubois uh, University Professor of Behavioral Sciences, and he's the founding director of the Institute for Health, Healthcare Policy, and Aging Research at Rutgers. He also served the 12 years as the National Program Director for the Robert Wood Johnson Investigator Awards in Health Policy Research Program. He's a preeminent sociologist whose research and many publications have influenced our understanding of the social aspects of health and health care. His remarkable abilities, a wonderful writer, insight to identify trends and to define new research areas and policy perspectives. And these really have led to redefining the field in many ways, not only uh, medical sociology generically, but in particular his work in mental health policy and mental health research. And uh, it's uh, one of those examples. He, he wrote in 68 uh, the book on medical sociology, which provided a basic framework for the entire discipline. He has devoted much of the past 50 years to tackling the complex medical and social problems posed by mental health and substance abuse, as Sandra uh, alluded to earlier, that I think both personally and professionally affect uh, all of us. And the need to develop more comprehensive and effective services for persons with severe and persistent mental illness. His book, Mental Health and Social Policy, was first published in 1969. It called for redirecting more attention to patients most ill and in greatest need. It is now in its sixth edition, so talk about having legs. Uh, just came out in 2013. David has received many honors for his research. I'm going to touch upon some of them here. The Institute of Medicine's Rona and Bernard Sarnat in the National Prize in Mental Health. Also the Adam Yarmolinsky Award, the Baxter Health Services Research Prize, the Distinguished Investigator Award from the then Association for Health Services Research, now Academy Health, the Romain Lapose Award, and the first Carl Taub Award for Distinguished Contributions to Mental Health Services Research from the American Public Health Association, and the Distinguished Career Award for the Practice of Sociology, the Distinguished Medical Sociologist Award, and Lifetime Contributions in Mental Health from the American Sociological Association. He also received the ben Benjamin Rush Award from the American Psychiatric Association. He was a Guggenheim Fellow and a Fellow at the Center for Advanced Study at, in the Behavioral Sciences here at Stanford. After receiving his BA from City College University in New York and his PhD from Stanford, he joined the faculty at the University of Wisconsin in 1960, where he was chair of the Department of Sociology and also the John Bascom Professor of Sociology and director of the Center for Medical Sociology and Health Services Research. He went to Rutgers in 1979 and over the past 34 years served as dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, directed the NIMH Center for Research on the Organization 
Education and Financing of Care for the Severely Mentally Ill and founded the Institute for Health, Healthcare Policy, and Aging Research, where he has built a thriving and highly respected research and training enterprise. He is, of course, a member of the National Academy of Sciences, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the Institute of Medicine. He's been a sought-out advisor to government, educational institutions, professional associations, philanthropies, and nonprofit organizations. Uh, I first met David, he probably does not remember this, uh, in 1970. I was a young uh, doctoral student at the time at University of Chicago, and his doctoral students are assigned the task of organizing these research seminars. So I was given a list of these people. I called David, he was then at Wisconsin, and he came, and I remember, David, I had about an hour with you, and you had just published an article at the time, uh, actually not quite in the field of mental health, it was in the organizational field. And I talked to you about that, and he said, oh, that's nothing, Steve. He said, my real interest is impacting public policy, not so much publishing in journals, and he was getting ready to do his first studies of general practice, if you remember that, in the UK. And so we exchanged uh, ideas around that and kind of bonded to David very early on. So please join me in welcoming David Mechanic. Thanks, Steve, for that uh, very kind introduction. I'm really honored to give the John Eisenberg Legacy Lecture. Uh, John distinguished himself as an extraordinary teacher, a great mentor, and an early leader, as you all know, in health services research and administration, and a person during times of great political difficulty really saved the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality making it possible for that organization to have the important role it now has in health reform. Now, while I've heard in detail from many of John's mentees over the years and collaborators, I really only knew John as a professional colleague who always impressed me as a very generous and exceptional, exceptional human being. We tried very hard to bring John to Rutgers as chairman of our Department of Medicine and the Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, uh, which if, if, we were if we were successful would have been a great coup for us, but uh, Penn managed to keep him at the time. His wonderful smile and warmth was enough to make anybody's day. Today I'm going to be talking about behavioral health, a topic John really didn't specifically uh, address in his work, but one that his insights and professional commitments continue to speak to in important ways. Uh, as you can see, I won't read the whole thing, you can see it, but basically John's position was that we really have to move away from authority or eminence-based medicine toward evidence-based medicine. It's a message that is, takes a long time to sort of sink in over a very dis, uh, heterogeneous set of professions, but one that John was very much committed to. And it's a challenge that we desperately need in mental health, where indeed we're a long way from practicing evidence-based medicine in a successful fashion. Now, one of the things that's impressed me over the years is I've been involved in very basic health policy deliberations, 
is that behavioral health has not been on the agenda of most, most health policy people. Most health policy people knew very little about it, were very little interested in it, and generally it never entered the discussion. It was really sort of something outside the usual discussions on health policy. And yet, uh, behavioral health is intrinsic to the health of the nation and the health of people. It's a very, very important component of the nation's health. And when I, thought, when I was on the advisory committee to the, the, the Secretary on Vital and Health Statistics, I, was very, I very aggressively pursued the message that uh, mental health, behavioral health, has to be an important part of thinking about the nation's, the nation's health. And we've made some progress over the years in that area. Just to review this very quickly, I think you probably know this, is that behavioral health problems are a major cause of reduced longevity in the population. There's a large excess deaths, number of deaths from suicide and accidents. But in fact, uh, people with serious mental health problems are represented across a whole, uh, decreased longevity across the whole spectrum of diseases cardiovascular diseases, diabetes, a whole range of illnesses uh, show an excess death for people with this particular problem. Uh, studies, there are a number of studies using different populations. The estimates of years lost of life, years of life lost range from eight to thirty years, depending on the population and the way the study is done. But it's clearly a lot of life is lost through these particular disorders. Uh, Behavioral disorders are also a major source of the nation's disability and inability to work, or when people work, reduced work performance. It's one of the largest contributors to Social Security disability uh, dependence and a great problem to the Social Security Administration. In addition, people with behavioral disorders find that these disorders complicate other major chronic diseases and exacerbate problems related to diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And unfortunately, that's even true of the treatment with antipsychotics, which contribute uh, to increased uh, diabetes and cardiovascular disease, particularly diabetes and the metabolic syndrome. Uh, there's no question we have many, many studies showing behavioral disorders induce great pain and distress in individuals who have these disorders, comparable to the very most serious physical disorders. And we all know that at its extreme, behavioral disorders disrupt families and the community, present significant uh, problems for the development of children in these families, and often, and, and sometimes under special circumstances, lead to increased violence. This is just one of many, many examples looking at uh, excess uh, death for, uh, compared to comparable aged individuals in the population, for people who have various disturbances, uh, particularly schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, also to some degree depression, uh, showing that there is two to two and a half times the risk of death in the first 10 years following the diagnosis and also higher risk in the next 10 years over time that risk uh, uh, decreases with a lot of these individuals having lost their lives already. Uh, there are many, many studies, they all agree on the, uh, on the, on the risk of excess uh, mortality in this population. 
Now, when one looks at this in a more macro, from a more macro point of view, we find that social forces, ideologies, and finances shape behavioral health more than treatment advances or evidence-based approaches. And that's sort of an overlying theme as I go through this discussion. We also find from many studies that prevalent treatments really adhere to established evidence-based standards. They fall far short of the standards set by the American Psychiatric Association and other groups. One can argue about whether those are the correct standards. They fall so far short that there's no question about the issue. There's also the premise that well-integrated community care would replace the functions of hospital care, which was a promise of deinstitutionalization and a promise which is still very far from realization. Uh, this is just one of the many examples of, of studies that try to look at compliance with practice standards, in this case depression. And as, as you can see, these are standards established by the American Psychiatric Association. And as you can see, uh, the adherence is very, very low. You get the highest adherence in the non-Latino white population, but it's only 12%. And it's less than 1% in the Caribbean black population. Now, uh, you might argue that these are the incorrect standards. They're too rigorous for many of these people who are being treated in primary care. But once again, uh, the performance is so bad, it's hard, to, it's hard to argue that there is any adherence to an evidence basis. I may also say this is a theme I'm not going to discuss today, but a very major theme. This shows a tremendous disparity among various uh, groups in our population. Uh, there are very, very large disparities in uh, the treatment provided, availability of treatment and the treatment provided to people in various uh, ethnic and racial groups. This is uh, sort of the story, story of my career. It's uh, the story of what's happened since 1955. In 1955, we had about 560,000 people in public mental hospitals. And over time, to the year 2000, it's gone down. So right now, we are about 40-some thousand people in, in public mental hospitals. For all practical purposes, we've eliminated uh, these, this kind of hospitalization. In 1956, I did my first study of uh, mental illness in Agnew State Hospital, not too far south of here. I don't know if it still exists as an institution, but it certainly is a major mental hospital. And I could tell you it was no picnic. These were not very good hospitals. It's a good thing in many ways that we have now gotten rid of them. But we've also promised in the process that uh, we were going to replace that with well-organized, integrated community systems of care. And we've failed in that promise to a very large extent, although we've made some progress over time over this period. Now, as the myth goes, in 1955, we introduced Thorazine in these big hospitals, and this marvelous drug just revolutionized things and allowed us to empty our mental hospitals. Uh, that, that argument has been made from time to time by the pharmaceutical companies. It's just not true. If you actually look at this chart, you could see that the drop in people institutionalized in these hospitals in the first 10 years after the introduction of Thorazine was only about 15%. 
A massive drop began in 1965 and continued to about 1985. And there are many, many factors that contributed. The most important factors were the development of a community safety net through the passage of Medicare Medicaid, the extension of Social Security disability insurance, and particularly the massive incentives to the states to, who were paying the full cost of these hospitals uh, to move their patients into institutions or into the community where the federal government would pick up most of the, most of the costs. So the incentives were really, the financial incentives were really a driving motivation in producing the very rapid deinstitutionalization that took place between 1965 and 1985. Other factors were a very strong anti-hospital ideology and community ideology, which prevailed among mental health professionals, and also toward the latter part of this period, the growth of the civil rights movement for the people with mental illness, which came out of the general civil rights movement, where attorneys started bringing suits on right to treatment, right to uh, be treated in the least restrictive environment, and so on. And in those years, California was a leader in, in, in a lot of this legislation and activity. Now, in, in the early 90s, we see the introduction of managed care. Uh, as you can see, managed care just reinforced a trend that was well on its way, and managed care contributed to continuing that trend a little bit, but managed care is not the explanation for, for this trend over time. So as we got rid of these hospitals, we needed places to treat people with florid mental illness, and we get, began treating them in general hospitals, first in both scatter beds, which are beds in other units, medical and surgical units, but most general hospitals then developed specialized uh, psychiatric and chemical dependency units where most of these patients are now treated. And over time, uh, the the admission rate, the length of, length of stay in these hospitals went down dramatically. Initially, it was averaging in the 30s. For some people, much more than that. And then uh, over time, it's been driven down to now, on average, about six, six and a half uh, days for people who are very, very seriously mentally ill because we now it's now pretty hard to get into a psychiatric hospital in a psychiatric bed both because of the management of care and the, the, the need to try and prevent unnecessary care, the high cost, and in many places the absence of sufficient uh, psychiatric beds. So there's really, uh, but, the, but the, the reason, one of the reasons we saw so much of the care now moving to general hospitals was in this case the Medicaid program was paying uh, a very large part of the freight for individuals who were covered by Medicaid. Many of these patients were. To just see how this process worked, the, the managed care movement began in the private sector when employers got concerned about their very high growing behavioral health costs. 
And uh, here's just one example of one firm, the Xerox firm. And it was very typical in the years prior to managed care, patients would usually be hospitalized for whatever the insurance paid for. So if they had 30-some days of coverage, they would be kept for 30 days. There was really no good standard for when a patient should be in the hospital at the time. Managed care was then introduced uh, in, in, the, in the private sector in the early 90s, and you can see what it did. In the case of Xerox, in, by 1994, it had reduced an average stay from 33, 34, 32 days to uh, less than 10 days. And this happened throughout the private economy of, uh, of, of behavioral health care. And, and then, it now, now, then moved to the public sector and the same set of ideas as utilization management, utilization review, and so on, led to similar patterns in the, in the, in the public sector. And as you can see over time, even recent, even the recent period, there has been a continuing drop in total days of inpatient care for people with mental illness and average length of days have stabilized pretty much, but it's down to, as I said, six, six and a half, seven, somewhere in that interval. And that's pretty, for some of these patients, uh, that is pretty short length of stay. I did some work for the state of New York. Uh, we followed a population of patients with schizophrenia who came into New York City hospitals over time. These patients were very, very sick. And basically what the hospitals did is they stabilized the patients and then send them out as sick as they came in. They were, they were, and, and the assumption was that the community system would pick up uh, their care, and in fact, what we found was that they got lost in the community. There was no adequate system to take care of them once they left the hospital. And that's a, that's a continuing problem in many areas of the country. Uh, now, some people, you will hear the contention made that our new mental hospital is these jails and prisons. And there's no question that the jail and prison population includes a very large number of people with serious mental illness, serious substance abuse problems, a comorbidity of mental illness and substance abuse problems, much higher than in, in other settings. Uh, this is a very complicated argument. I would need a whole period to discuss it as to whether we are really criminalizing the mentally ill in the way in which some advocates suggest. But there's no question that many patients, many clients end up in mental hospitals, are arrested, uh, and that the care they get in, in the criminal justice system is for the most part inadequate and uh, a, a real problem. And then they, when they return to the community, the problems of transition are, are very, very difficult. Here's just one example from the state of Washington, which makes another point. It's a very important point. People who simply have mental illnesses, behavioral disorders, typically don't end up for the most part in the prison system. It's the combination of mental illness and comorbidities, most usually substance abuse comorbidities, that lead to many of the problems we identify 
with serious mental illness. Unfortunately, with patients in the community, a very large number of patients use substances, get addicted to substances, trade in substances, and the great majority of individuals who are in prisons and jails with mental illness are on some kind of substance abuse offense uh, conviction or being held because of substance abuse. So the substance abuse combination with mental illness is a very toxic combination and one for a long time the system did not address. Under the Affordable Care Act, there's real effort to, uh, to really address that more seriously and we'll have to see how that goes. This is just one example of, of what, uh, what happens, the, the kind of light blue line or green line indicates that uh, when people have both a mental illness and also are involved with substance abuse, they, they're more emergency uh, room visits, they're more likely to be arrested, there's more unemployment, there's more homelessness and residential instability, there's less adherence to medication, and many, many problems when you, when you bring together the substance abuse problem and the mental illness problem. Although for many years until very recently, most mental health programs will not take a client who also was abusing substances. The mental health system was very separate from the substance abuse system, yet more and more of the patients were in fact comorbid for substance abuse problems and mental health problems. And now we're beginning to try and address that. It's, we're a long way from addressing that adequately. Now the other aspect about people with mental illness is they are one of the largest uninsured populations. So uh, for example, uh, approximately 20%, 21%, 22%, depending upon the studies, has been, uh, have no insurance of any sort. Uh, which uh, for the general population has been 14 or 15 percent, so they're more likely to be uninsured. And we know that in, in the individuals who are uninsured are much less likely to receive care of any kind. And you can see this very clearly, that mental health treatment is, has been much less available to people who are uninsured than people who are either privately or insured or publicly insured through Medicaid, SHIP, and so on. Now, as you can see from this chart, uh, in fact, the proportion of expenditures, health expenditures, going to behavioral health, mental health and substance abuse, has gone down over time, dropping from 9.3% in 1986 to 7.3% in 2009, a pretty large uh, a drop. Now, probably shouldn't be a surprise to us uh, mental health is sort of a low-tech enterprise for the most part, other than pharmaceuticals, and that's pretty low-tech too in comparison to cancer or cardiovascular disease where there have been tremendous increases in fancy imaging and, and rather uh, high-powered high technical interventions that are very, very expensive, new drugs that are very, very expensive. And, so, and, and also very strong advocates for expenditures in those areas, particularly cancer and cardiovascular disease. Uh, in fact, behavioral health, despite increased intention, does not have very strong voices for it in the community. 
uh, the pharmaceutical voice is by far the strongest, uh, yet the pharmaceutical voice is a very limited voice and often not the right voice to represent the broad interests and concerns and needs of persons with serious mental illness. The other big change that has taken place in the last uh, uh, 20, 25 years, part of it is, as I said, we, didn't, we have a real drop in hospitalization. And as you can see from this chart between 1990 and the year 2009, there's been a real drop in expenditures for inpatient care for people with mental health problems. The gigantic increase occurred in the use of pharmaceuticals and the prescription of pharmaceuticals, where in 1990 we were spending less than 9% of expenditures uh, for pharmaceuticals, and it, in 2009 it's up to almost 29% and rising. And it's been, as you all know, been very, very aggressive uh, uh, promotion of pharmaceuticals to physicians, to health professionals, to the general public, through direct-to-consumer advertising and so on. And there has really been a real explosion in the use of particularly antidepressants, and I'm going to come to that in more detail as I go on. Here you can see the rise in pharmaceuticals between 1996 and 2008, and the blue line is antidepressants, which show everything has risen, all types of medications, uh, anti psychiatric medications, but the antidepressants have really gone up astronomically. And then the issue is what's happening, how is this happening, who's making these prescriptions, and so on. And we're going to talk about that now. But just going back, we have very few studies that monitor the general population over time. They're very expensive, and they haven't been done very often. Uh, in 1990, we had the first national comorbidity study by Ron Kessler and his group at Harvard, uh, which was then followed up in 2001-2003 with the national comorbidity study replication, which provides comparable data across the period using the very same measures for the most part. And as, I, as you can see, get measuring the things they measured, there's really no change in, in, in uh, assessed prevalence of disorder in these community surveys. But these community surveys show a very large increase in treatment provided. And treatment, I'm using very loosely, is any kind of behavioral health treatment. It doesn't have to be sophisticated or good. It, it's just some kind of treatment. Now... The point I would like to make, and it's part of a point I've made throughout my whole career, in this population, 20% of the population aren't mentally ill, aren't indeed of uh, high interventions. Uh, the population that is uh, seriously mentally ill is much smaller. It's probably in the vicinity of 5 6% of the population. These are individuals who not only have a mental disorder, but also have very serious functional impairments associated with their mental disorder. And of course, these people get more treatment than people with uh, less, more moderate or less severe mental disorders. But, the, but what I would try to impress upon you is that every single one of those persons should be in treatment. These are really sick and impaired individuals. And yet, data available from various studies indicate that a third of these people are receiving no mental health care for the entire prior year. 
every one of these people, for the most part, should be receiving some kind of monitoring, some kind of mental health treatment. So there's a real failure in dealing with the most severely impaired population, while at the same time, half of all services are being used by individuals who don't meet uh, established criteria for clinical disorder that's used in some of these epidemiological surveys. This shows this a little more vividly. The red part of the, of, of the line represents those individuals who are seriously mentally ill and who are impaired in various ways. These are people who most desperately need care. Uh, they're the bottom of the line, the green part, and includes people who have minor, very often transitory disorders, uh, but who uh, also get treatment uh, as well, very often with uh, prescription drugs and so on. But as you can see, uh, compared to other countries where studies are done comparatively, we devote much more of our resources to people who are not the most severely mentally ill, while other countries like Canada devote much greater proportion of their resources to that red part of the chart, those individuals who are more seriously mentally ill and who have serious impairments at the same time. The other part of this story is the importance of Medicaid. Medicaid now pays 30% of all of mental health expenditures in the nation. It's been going up, and with the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, it's going to go up more. And you can see here that Medicaid is a big player. If you look at people 18 and older who have received mental health treatment, the blue line is Medicaid. Uh, it is, uh, it, it's the majority provider in outpatient care, inpatient care, and in and provision of prescription medications. So, in a sense, if we have a mental health policy, it's Medicaid policy, uh, which is, and I'll talk about that in more detail. The other part of the story is that most of the psychiatric drugs are being prescribed by general physicians and not by mental health specialty uh, personnel. As you can see here, three-fifths of all psychiatric drugs are being provided by non-mental health practitioners. Uh, this is not true for the antipsychotics and the anti-mania drugs. Uh, general uh, physicians still have some, some concern and worry about prescribing those drugs for people who are more severely ill, but they are the big providers, the antidepressants, the anti-anxiety drugs, and so on. So a very large part of the system is in primary care. And in fact, the, the objective of the Affordable Care Act is to give primary care an even bigger role in taking care of patients. So one of the big issues is how good is it and what can we do to make it better? Because in fact, the evidence indicates that on the whole, the behavioral care provided in primary care is not very good. This is, this is data on the prescription of antidepressants by primary care providers. And as you can see, that's been going up dramatically. With the introduction of the SSRIs, uh, general practitioners, uh, 
general internists, others have felt much more comfortable prescribing these drugs. The earlier antidepressants had somewhat more dangers associated with them, and a lot of practitioners were kind of fearful of using them. But as the SSRIs came on the market and promoted very, very aggressively by the pharmaceutical companies, general physicians started handing these out uh, quite, quite easily and quite readily. And as, as you can see, increasingly more and more of these drugs are being prescribed without a psychiatric diagnosis, in fact, without any kind of evaluation, seriously. The patient provides some symptoms of, of, of psychiatric distress or psychological distress, and the, the physician then provides, uh, provides a prescription for an SSRI, typically. And with very little follow-up, the studies show that these patients are not follow-up, not monitored in the way in which evidence-based practices would suggest they should be. The other thing to point out that is when, when patients are seen within the mental health specialty sector, they usually do get some kind of evaluation and some kind of diagnosis. The failure to provide any kind of diagnosis is common only primarily in the primary care sector and not in the specialty mental health sector. And so an awful lot of these patients who are receiving antidepressants clearly have some depression, but the question is, is, is a a medication the right kind of treatment without a careful evaluation assessment and looking at other treatment modalities. In fact, if you actually look at the data, the evidence-based data, the data show quite persuasively that these drugs don't work very well until the person has a pretty high level of depression. The Hamilton depression scale is one developed by a British doctor many years ago and is used in many, many, if not most, clinical trials. Uh, the cutting point here of 25 is a pretty high level of depressive symptoms. And as you can see, in, until you hit that level of 25, pretty much the antidepressants are simply a placebo, doing no better than a placebo, uh, as shown in many studies. It's only when patients are much sicker that you begin to see some uh, additional effect from the medication. Now, this, uh, so, so, this, so in order to, to provide good therapy, you have to do this evaluation. You have to do this assessment. You can't just hand a drug to anyone who's complaining of psychological distress. Now, now I get to this, in many ways, the more important part of this is to point out, and it's something anyone who works in behavioral health knows, that good treatment is a lot more than pharmaceuticals. You have to do a lot more to take care of people with serious mental illness and impairments. And you obviously need, and this is something the Affordable Care Act recognizes and is trying to encourage, integrated services and linkage to social and rehabilitative supports. You can't treat people easily on the streets, so you have to be concerned with stable housing, and increasingly mental health programs are doing that, although not enough. So the, homeless, the homeless mentally ill are still a significant proportion of people who are homeless and on the streets. Uh, you have to do good medication management. You have to instruct people and their families on illness and Medicaid education. You have to learn about their illness and how to deal with medication and so on. It's very important to involve families in this process. 
One has to deal with the substance abuse problem and treatment of substance abuse since increasingly a very large proportion of these patients are comorbid for substance abuse problems. Uh, one has to do various kinds of rehabilitation. Uh, one, one thing most people with mental illness want, if you talk to them, is they want to be able to have some useful role, have some work perhaps. Uh, and we now have 19 controlled clinical trials showing the supported employment works, that you can get people into competitive employment, often people who are very seriously impaired, uh, as, and get them to at least partly successfully perform. Uh, but we don't do that. It's not a coverage service under most circumstances. And of course, you need a lot of social and personal support. But for the most part, our system is a system of providing medications. It's been a drop-in cognitive and other kinds of psychotherapies and other forms of intervention and, and the pharmaceutical treatments predominate. So what are the challenges? We have to ensure that people, particularly those who are most seriously ill, have access to care. We have to provide and coordinate the essential elements of care, something that we aspire to through the Affordable Care Act, in theory medical homes and ACOs and 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 uh, health homes, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, uh, are, are intended to do that. Uh, all I would say is it's, it's, a, it's, it's a tough challenge. It doesn't happen easily given all of the barriers to implementation, the financial barriers, the organizational team barriers, and so on that characterize our healthcare system. There are very difficult patients. We don't have all the answers here. And there are very difficult patients who are very hard to manage, no matter how hard you try. Uh, this includes, as I said, patients with serious substance abuse comorbidity. Uh, you have some patients with very poor treatment adherence who are very, very difficult to keep in treatment. Uh, these kinds of patients require very special efforts, very much more intensive care. We have some programs that can do this. Uh, they are often not available in many parts of the country. Now when you talk about other than those medications which work to some degree, although they're often overrated, the uh, effectiveness of the medications are very much exaggerated in promotion by the pharmaceutical companies and their marketing. But in addition, there are, there are various modalities, often social modalities, that are not provided even though they've been proven to be quite effective. I've already mentioned supported employment. Uh, actually, this particular slide shows what states these are, many of these things are now funded by Medicaid as optional services, meaning states are not required to do these things, but they can opt in, and the more progressive states do opt in. So we now have 15 states, for example, paying under the Medicaid program for supported employment. And as you can see, for the most part, many of these things, which are quite important, supportive housing, family psychoeducation, illness, disability management, uh, improved and integrated mental health substance abuse treatment, these kinds of things are available for states that want to opt in. Uh, as we can see, some states do, many states don't. And that's part of the dilemma of the Medicaid program, which is our, for all practical purposes, our mental health policy, 
but it's very variable among states where states have great discretion as to how much or how little they're going to do under the program, or as we see in the case of the Affordable Care Act, whether in fact they expand Medicaid as, uh, as encouraged and incentivized through the Affordable Care Act. Now, health reform, and here I refer to the Affordable Care Act and also the recent federal parity legislation, uh, really contribute a lot to improving the opportunities for behavioral health. Mental health and substance abuse are now essential benefits. Uh, there is now broader access to Medicaid among the uninsured in those states that opt into this expansion of Medicaid. There are no longer exclusion and pre-existing conditions, many of them which were psychiatric. Uh, with that, for those without insurance from employers who are in the workforce, uh, there's access to health exchanges and subsidies to purchase these services up to 400% of the federal poverty level. We have now minimal standards for meaningful coverage uh, within the exchanges for health insurance. There are lots of opportunities in the Affordable Care Act for demonstrations on innovations to improve chronic care management, uh, services integration, and the medical home program, which is growing. Uh, but I, I would point out, given what I've said about primary care, these are not easy things to do. They're not done quickly. They take a lot of effort, a lot of organization, a lot of infrastructure, and there's a big challenge in really doing this right. And of course, we still have, parity is pretty new. The regs, the final regs have just come out very recently, uh, but we have to implement parity, which says that basically uh, behavioral health has to be treated on the same principles as other health care. You can't have differential exclusions for behavioral health as compared with physical health. Now, the big innovation that many people don't know about in the Affordable Care Act is an incentive for states to develop health homes, which allow for integrated, comprehensive services uh, uh, for people with multiple chronic diseases or for people with serious mental illness and other problems, or people just with very serious mental illness. And the health homes are accountable for coordinating all of the individual's care. They have to have a good electronic health system to do that. It's person-centered care. It's population-based care. It's driven by data and information which is shared widely within the medical home uh, personnel. And it's supposed to be evidence-based care. These are the principles. We're now just beginning to see these principles being tried out in various states. Uh, as of November, uh, CMS reports that 13 states have now been approved for, um, for these uh, health homes. Uh, some states are going gangbusters, like New York State, which is really moving ahead and has some wonderful programs that they're developing for people with serious mental illness. Other states uh, have their planning uh, requests approved but haven't yet moved. Some states have done nothing. But at least Health Home provides an encouraging sign that there are states and, and professionals within the system who are very anxious to provide the kind of coordinated and integrated care that are very much 
necessary. Finally, let me just say, in ending, one quick thing. We have a very inadequate workforce in behavioral health, in part that's why we depend so much, so strongly on primary care doctors. Uh, we have inadequate uh, psychiatric personnel. Actually, the number of psychiatrists being trained is going down rather than up. And more than half of the psychiatrists practicing in this country are over age 55. But for obvious reasons, psychiatry is not a popular specialty. It's a difficult specialty. It's not very remunerative compared with other things that doctors can do. And we're having trouble uh, drawing good people into psychiatry. We also have, we have a desperate shortage of child psychiatrists uh, and adolescent psychiatrists. Uh, once again, for all of these personnel, there are tremendous disparities among the states and between rural and urban areas. So the fact that we have these numbers tells you very little about what will be available in any given area. For the most part, many of these uh, uh, clinicians and practitioners do not practice evidence-based practice. We have to do a lot to re-educate individuals, improve the training programs, recruit stronger individuals. We really have not really addressed in any significant way the need to build, given our aspirations, given all the things we say we want to do, build an adequate professional workforce for dealing with the many difficult problems that behavioral health uh, involves. So. We do have barriers. There are barriers, as you know, by the Supreme Court uh, decision to limit federal sanctions on states that don't expand their Medicaid programs. We know that states are very worried, uh, reasonably so, by the tremendous growth of their Medicaid programs, which are pushing out other things states want to do. But we're doing all of this in the most toxic environment of very ideological opposition by Republican governors and legislatures to the ACA and the implementation of the ACA with a lot of effort to sabotage it uh, all along the way. So it is a very tough arena we face as we go forward. Cost is a big problem. Everyone wants to control cost, but uh, controlling cost is a difficult issue in the kind of health system we presently have. And while we always say that we are want to address the problem of stigma, in fact, uh, we are not making much progress. Uh, behavioral health problems are still very highly stigmatized. Individuals are still very reluctant to acknowledge them, and often they're penalized for doing so. On the other hand, if you take a very long perspective, as I have from the very beginning when I started in 1956 in working in this arena, uh, I think it's fair to say that we've seen lots of major improvements. Uh, millions of people are far better off than they were in those earlier periods. But it's also clear that the gaps in care, uh, the inadequacies of care are very large, and we have a long way to go, and let's hope that we're up to the task. Thank you. Uh, John Eisenberg was uh, of such a status uh, in Washington that, uh, he, among many, he was known as simply John of AHRQ. No last name needed. Um, his, uh, his signature accomplishment was to uh, sh shape 
public policy thinking, uh, healthcare management, and uh, and practice uh, around the not in retrospect not terribly revolutionary concept, but at the time very revolutionary. That that all of these three activities, policy, uh, healthcare management, and uh, and practice, uh, should be governed uh, by evidence. Uh, rather than uh, than an expert uh, opinion, um, for these for that reason, uh, he would be pleased that this year's Eisenberg Award is main, being made to you, David, uh, for uh, a lifetime of uh, of work and contribution that has illuminated one of the most challenging areas of health services research, uh, and and also your work uh, in. Broadly influencing uh, improvement in the healthcare system based on policy recommendations uh, aimed well beyond uh, behavioral health uh, care. Um, let me just read uh, the inscription on this uh, commitment. This year you were selected to give the Eisenberg uh, Legacy Lecture for exemplifying John Eisenberg's commitment to bringing the best of health services research to bear on the crucial issues that face clinicians and policymakers. Congratulations, David. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.